Five little-known mysteries that will terrify. At times, news of murder and missing people make it to the headlines, while others immediately sink into the unknown. The cases on this list are ones you might not have heard of, but they're nonetheless equally important and worth knowing about. These are five little-known mysteries that will terrify. Number five, Jessica Chambers. It was a horrifying sight for first responders. A young female in her underwear walking towards them asking for help all up in flames. The 19-year-old girl burned to death was Jessica Chambers. She grew up in the small town of Cortland, Mississippi, a town that had only around 500 residents, so everybody knew everybody. On December 6, 2014, Jessica had spent the morning with two friends. She headed to her mother's house after and took a nap. In the afternoon, she left after receiving a text message from someone. Jessica told her mother she was going to eat and would be back to clean her room. At 5.30 p.m., she was seen at a gas station, and the attendant was familiar with her and asked why she was buying $14 worth of gas when she normally just fills it up with $5 worth. Jessica answered she was going somewhere. At 8.09 p.m., Cortland's volunteer fire department received a call of a burning car down a rural road about a mile from that gas station. Once there, the responders found the car. Just ahead of the road was Jessica burning. Over 98% of her body was burned. Her fingers were gone. Her skin was crisp and her tongue had fallen off. She could only gurgle words to the first responders as she tried to say who she was and tell them the name of the person police believed burned her. She was airlifted to the hospital where she died four hours later. The crime shocked everyone in the small town. Not only was her death gruesome and brutal, it was unheard of in the small community. Police interviewed all those close to Jessica, including her ex-boyfriend, as well as convicted drug dealers who might have had a connection to her. Jessica was somewhat of a rebellious teenager who may have mixed in with a bad crowd. On several occasions, she even told her father some people thought she was a snitch because her dad was working as a mechanic for the police. When first responders found Jessica, she mentioned an Eric or Derek. They believe it could be the name of her attacker. It was tough to find a suspect, but among those first interviewed was Quentin Tellis. The two lived in the same neighborhood and went to the same high school. Police said Tellis changed his story about the day of the murder several times. Police checked his cell phone location and it was revealed he was with Jessica until around 7.30 p.m. close to his home. Between the 30 minutes she left Tellis' home and headed to the area where she was later found, authorities felt it was unlikely she encountered someone else. More suspicious, an hour after Jessica's death, Tellis deleted all of his communications with Jessica from his phone, even though he had been constantly messaging her days before. In fact, he repeatedly asked her to sleep with him that day, and she repeatedly turned him down. Police also found Jessica's car keys on the side of the road between the crime scene and Tellis' sister's home. The keys also had Tellis' DNA. He was arrested and formally charged with Jessica's murder in February of 2016. According to the prosecution, while the two were in Tellis' driveway, he tried to make a move on her and she resisted. 
Out of anger, he likely suffocated her unconscious and thought she had died. He then took her car to an isolated area and ran on foot to his sister's house, which was nearby. He took her car and a can of gasoline from her shed and returned to Jessica's car, setting it on fire while she was inside. In October of 2017, a trial was heard for Jessica's murder. The jury misunderstood the instructions, and the result was a not guilty verdict, even though the majority had voted guilty. It resulted in a mistrial. In the following year, in 2018, another trial was heard, and again, there was a mistrial. Prosecutors are unsure whether they will retry Tellus for Jessica's murder. However, Tellus is already facing murder charges against the death of a woman named Meng Chen So. Tellus was caught using her credit card after her death. The So was stabbed to death in Louisiana in August of 2015. Number 4. Bradford Bishop Jr. William Bradford Bishop Jr. once served as an international diplomat with postings in several countries around the world. Brad was a Yale graduate and could speak six languages. He also had a special set of skills, including knowing how to fly a plane. Like his colleagues, Brad felt great pressure to be promoted. For many in the foreign diplomat services, if you didn't get promoted after a certain time, then you're out. Brad took this to heart, and when he was passed up from a promotion, he then quit his job. He turned to a desk job instead at the State Department in Washington, D.C. On March 1, 1976, he left that job early and told his secretary he wasn't feeling well. He went to the hardware store, bought a small sledgehammer and a gas can, then went home to Bethesda, Maryland. Later that evening, Brad took the sledgehammer and bludgeoned his entire family. He killed his wife and his three sons, ages 14, 10, and 5. He loaded their bodies into their station wagon, drove five hours to Tyrrell County in North Carolina, and headed into the woods. He dug a shallow grave, dumped the bodies in there, and then set them on fire. A ranger saw that fire and soon discovered the bodies, and then a manhunt for Brad began after they managed to trace the identity of the victims. It took a week for police to trace the family home in Bethesda. When officers entered the home, they described it as a horror house. One officer remembers the number of hammer marks on the ceiling above the top of the bunk bed in the boys' bedrooms. It told them just how many times he swung the hammer to kill his own son. Ever since he disappeared, the FBI has been hot on Brad Bishop's trail. There have been three credible sightings of him since his disappearance in 1976. The first was by a Swedish woman and former acquaintance in Stockholm in July of 1978. The other was a former neighbor who saw him on a train platform in Basel, Switzerland in 1994. Finally, a former colleague stood next to him in the men's room in Sorrento, Italy in January of 1979. The colleague was a former Foreign Service Officer, Roy Harrell. He said the man had a beard and looked different, but he knew it was him. He turned to the man and said, You're Brad Bishop, aren't you? The stranger began trembling and shaking and denied it was him. Today, Brad Bishop would be in his late 70s. He still sits on the 10 most wanted fugitives list by the FBI. Bishop is described as an avid outdoorsman, 
He has brown hair and brown eyes and stands six foot one. And he has a six inch vertical surgical scar on his lower back. Number three, Dog Boy Haunting. The small town of Quitman sits within Claiborne County, Arkansas. Quiet and unassuming, this small town is steeped with history, but what it's really known for these days is a single Victorian-style house that sits in the downtown area. The house is said to be home to ghosts and all sorts of malicious and malevolent paranormal creatures, the most famous of which is an entity known as Dog Boy. The home was built in 1890 by the Garretts, Later on, it was bought by the Bettises. After several years of trying, the Bettis family bore a son they named Gerald Floyd Bettis. But it was clear there was something wrong with this child. As a toddler, he was already violent, often capturing stray dogs and cats and then torturing them and killing them in a variety of ways. He collected dogs, hence his nickname, Dog Boy. Every day, the neighbors would hear the animals shriek and howl in agony and pain. Some would come out all mangled and mutilated, a sign the boy was exceptionally cruel to them. As he grew older, he became cruel not just to animals, but even to his parents. It didn't help he also had a large and brute physique. His neighbors and those who knew what was happening were too scared of him to say anything. There were rumors he regularly beat his own elderly father and locked both his parents upstairs, only feeding and giving them water like pets. Later on, his dad died from a broken neck, and it's believed it was because Gerald had pushed him off the stairs. It wasn't until the 80s when Gerald was arrested for growing weed in his sunroom. That was the only time his mother felt confident enough to let the authorities know of the abuse they suffered under him. Gerald stayed in prison until his death in May of 1988. His mother died in 1995, and then the home was sold. But the horror stories from that home were only just beginning. Those who lived in the house have shared frightening stories of unusual events happening inside. They would leave the lights off only to return home and find them turned on. Then there were the moving objects and unusual noises. Tony Weaver, one of the men who eventually lived in the house, contacted the Central Arkansas Society for Paranormal Research. They, too, encountered unusual things while investigating the home, such as a large, shadowy figure walking the grounds. After six months of staying in the home, the Weavers were ready to leave. A friend of theirs who also stayed with them for a time also reported seeing the apparition of a man in a World War II uniform and another figure wearing a brown suit. At one point, they heard a large crash upstairs and rushed to see what it was, only to find the wooden floorboards had all been stood up straight against the wall. As the Weavers attempted to sell the home, even potential home buyers were scared off while checking the property. Spirit Medium said the house contains a vengeful entity, presumably that of Gerald Bettis or the Dog Boy. Today, the story of the Dog Boy continues to be prominent in the area. Many still think Gerald and his sinister streak continue to remain on the property. Number two, Erica Frazier disappearance. In the small town of Brooksville, Kentucky, everyone was neighbors. Erica was a high school senior who worked part-time at Carota's Pizza. And like most teenagers, she liked hanging out with her friends and going out and partying a lot. 
On October 21, 1997, she decided to head out and cruise around Brooksville in her car. It was the normal thing for teenagers to do in the town, and she was last seen between 9 and 10 p.m. at Video and Tan in Brooksville. When she didn't arrive home the next day, though, her mother then called the police. While they took note of it, they weren't fully concerned since she was a teenager and likely had gotten drunk and slept it off at a friend's house. But when she still didn't return home later that day, they decided to search for her car. Her 1988 Pontiac Bonneville was found wedged between two large bales of hay in a field at Franks Lane, just a mile from Video and Tan. The car wasn't locked and the keys were discovered in a field. Erica's wallet, purse, and checkbook, along with some money, were still inside the vehicle untouched, but there was no sign of her. Police and the school principal urged classmates to tell them if they knew anything about her disappearance, but it was a difficult investigation. There was practically no evidence left in the vehicle, no fingerprints, foreign hair or fibers, and few witnesses or tips came in. Shortly after Erica's disappearance, 20-year-old Shane Simcox told a reporter he was the last person to have seen Erica alive. He said that she took him home at 9 p.m. His statement caused red flags since Erica was only presumed missing and not dead. Simcox was asked if he would take a lie detector test but refused. He has been named as a person of interest but not charged with anything since there's no evidence to tie him to Erica's disappearance. Nobody knows what happened to Erica Frazier to this day. Some believe she may have been killed by someone she knew, possibly by Shane Simcox, and today her case still remains open. Number 1. Ghost of Big Moose Lake It was true love for 20-year-old Grace Brown. The dairy farm girl was originally from Chenago County before moving to Cortland to work at the Gillette Skirt Factory. It was here she met Chester Gillette, the owner's nephew. The two began secretly dating. With Gillette's prominent name, he wasn't exactly thrilled to let everyone know he was dating a factory girl. In May of 1906, Brown revealed to Gillette she was pregnant. During the time, unwed mothers were considered outcasts from society. Brown went back to their farm and the two continued to exchange letters. Brown pleaded for Gillette to marry her, and when Gillette finally responded, he told her he had planned a romantic outing for the two of them in the Adirondacks in July of that year. Excited, she thought Gillette was finally going to propose to her during their hiking trip. So they went to Utica on the first night of their trip, then to Tupper Lake on the second night. On July 11th, they took a train back to Utica but stopped at Big Moose Lake. The couple rented a canoe together and spent the afternoon there. Brown left her luggage at the train station, but Gillette took his suitcase with him, which also contained a tennis racket. Once it was early evening, it's believed Gillette took out the racket and bashed in Brown's head with it. She fell into the water and drowned because she didn't know how to swim. Gillette immediately left the scene and spent the night at Arrowhead Hotel using an alias. Brown died and soon after her body was discovered. During the autopsy, it was determined she had bruises to her head and that she had died while carrying her four-month-old child. Within days of the murder, Chester Gillette was arrested, but he maintained his innocence. 
The trial then became one of the biggest in upstate New York's history during the time. The defense said Brown committed suicide while the prosecution insisted Gillette bashed her head in with that racket and did nothing to save her. In December of 1906, the jury found Gillette guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to the electric chair. According to the reports, Gillette was calm and even smiling when the sentence was read to him. It said he finally admitted to the murder to his spiritual advisor in prison, although the details were never revealed. Chester Gillette was then executed on March 30, 1908. Many who visit Big Moose Lake say Grace Brown's ghost can be seen in the water or walking around the lake. Witnesses have said she even haunts the nearby hotels. One employee at a nearby lodge, Rhonda Boussalot, had a strange feeling that the presence of another individual had reached out close to her to switch on the cabin light. She wasn't sure what it was, but felt sure someone was there with her. When she headed outside, her co-workers were watching her in excitement. All of them had seen an unusual image of a person moving very close to Rhonda. They believe it was Grace Brown simply letting her presence be known. So there were five little-known mysteries that will terrify. These unusual mysteries remind us that there are some things beyond explanation and that sometimes things that happen in this world just simply don't make any sense. If you enjoyed watching this video, then please consider supporting us on Patreon and subscribe to our channel. We have new videos coming out every Wednesday and Saturday we know you'll want to check out. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you soon.